Good morning. To be fair, that's not the entire story. Zach's brother led us into his home. His wife laughed, and we were led into his office, and we decorated it kindly. And if you know Zach, he doesn't exactly behave himself either, right? Don't leave your cell phone sitting out because it'll have 100 pictures of him, and he'll be spending days deleting them all. So Zach got what he deserved. Our timing was off. <clears throat> Good morning. Hey, thank you for letting me be with you this morning. And, and I got to tell you, I'm used to preaching in front of less than young people. Like on Sunday mornings, the age is around 70, 65, 70. And so about five minutes into the message, everybody's sound asleep. And so I'm not used to eyes actually looking at me the whole time. So if I get a little anxious or insecure, you'll understand. I'm used to people falling asleep. And the other side, if you fall asleep, I'm right at home. Go ahead and nod off. It's good. You know, I was a college student at one time. I understand it's hard. And so don't feel bad if you fall asleep. By the way, do you realize the gift you have that leads your worship? Are you aware of the students that are absolutely touched by the divine in such a profound way that their humility and their faith leads you deeper into the mystery that is God? Can we give them a round of applause for their gift and their willingness to serve? So I was told when Zach asked me that the focus for the fall semester is Jesus is. And initially I thought, the sermon title should be Jesus is for other. And that's a deep theological, Christological unpacking that we could have done. But meeting with Zach and praying about it, that didn't feel like the message for today. And so the sermon title is Jesus is for you. Jesus is for you. And our text, although the focus for the whole semester has been Colossians 1. By the way, I'm a little hoarse. Uh, I yelled all night last night at a soccer game. Do you have any soccer players that were at the game last night? I was told there's a whole bunch of central players that showed up. Hayden Hoxie hit the game winner. You guys know Coach Hoxie? Right? Can we give a round of applause for Hayden Hoxie and the Hoxie family that brought that game home for us? And so I'm hoarse. I'm a little less powerful my voice, and so thank you for your grace. Our scripture focus comes from the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 16. It reads, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, Jesus asked? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. To make sure you're still awake at this point, I have a favor to ask of you. This is going to be an engaging message. I expect you to sort of engage and be a part of what we're doing this morning. I'm all about participatory worship, and so I need you to get your phones out. And, and don't worry, you're not going to get in trouble if you have your phones out. I want you to get your phones out, and I want you to do this. I want you to Google some things for me. And I need you to respond with what you find. But you got to speak loud because... You don't have a mic in hand. I've got the mic. And two, as Zach should have shared, I am deaf in one ear, and I can't hear you unless you speak really loud. And so, deal? We understand each other? All right, here we go. I want you to Google 
simply Jesus. Google image Jesus. All right? When you have something you want to share, raise your hand or stand up or speak up. What do you see? What do you find? <clears throat> Why are we laughing? That's right. A white man, right? Okay. Anybody else? Interesting, isn't it? I got to tell you, Jesus wasn't white. I hate to break it to everybody. Being from that part of the world, his skin wasn't white, his hair wasn't blonde, and his eyes weren't blue. Now, I want you to Google Jesus friend. Google Jesus friend. Share, what do you see? What do you find? Okay, yeah, right there with us, right beside us, right? Any more before I go on? Now I want you to Google Jesus Rome. Jesus Rome. Anybody have the courage to share now? Shouldn't be as pretty necessarily. Okay. Good. The final one. Final one. I want you to Google Jesus Central Christian College. I did all these Google searches, and so I know something pops up. But you might be amazed at how many things pop up when you put those in your Google search. So why? Why have I asked you to do this? Why have I encouraged you to do a search for Jesus? Why have I disrupted worship by having you talk and engage and stick your faces in your phone? Because in order, sisters and brothers, for us to answer the question, who do we say Jesus is, we need to know who we believe him to be. We need to know how he appears to us, how his presence in our lives affects us, impacts us, motivates us, calls us. I shared before, the whole semester has been Christological messages based off of Colossians 1. And it feels like right now, as election season is right around the corner, literally next week, it feels like the perfect time for us to struggle and to wrestle with this text and what it means for us to say we believe in Jesus and who Jesus is today, right here, right now, in this sacred space. By the way, when I say we, I refer to the entire church universal, beyond denominations. I mean, all of us who call on the name of Jesus. I mean, everyone who professes to believe that Jesus came to save and not to condemn. The we I reference extends beyond denominations, socioeconomic status, political affiliation, gender, race, etc. It is just as Paul wrote about in Corinthians, Romans, and Ephesians. We, sisters and brothers, are one faith, one church, one baptism. Yet, when we look at our world, I don't know if folks outside the church can accuse us of being one. I wonder how persons outside the church, outside the faith, view those of us within. Do they see sisters and brothers laboring together for the kingdom of God? Would our neighbors who don't know Jesus very well or don't know Jesus at all, who don't go to church, 
would they know that we follow Jesus? I sure hope so. But as I see things, as I see the world, and I watch the news at night, I just don't know if that holds true. I don't know if the wider society recognizes Jesus in us and through us. I don't know if persons seeking truth would know the author of truth through interacting with us. I just don't know. It takes me back to the question Jesus asked Peter and the disciples. Hear it again. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? Jesus asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. I got to tell you, this is Peter at his greatest. Pete says all the right things here and captures Jesus' attention so much and so well that after Peter makes this announcement, professes that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus responds to him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Peter answers correctly. He gets it right. He wins the Jesus trivia. But what does it all mean? What does it mean to profess that Jesus is the Messiah, the one God promised through David, that Jesus is the anointed one, Emmanuel? What does it mean? How will Jesus, as word made flesh, as truth manifested on earth, how will that truth impact Peter and the others? Well, beyond their wildest imaginations. You see, that day, the disciples not only got keys to heaven on earth, they were given glimpses into how God intended to heal the entire cosmos. Their faith statement wasn't just some guessing game. It was the linchpin that changed the course of human history. This interaction with Jesus and the disciples follows a confrontation that Jesus had with religious authorities. Before we go on, I need to share that Sadducees and Pharisees all too often get a bad break in Christian circles. The authors of the Gospels don't exactly paint these zealous persons in great light. Most of the time, the religious leaders come across as arrogant, naive, combative, resistant to Jesus. If there was, in fact, a religious leader, let's say like Nicodemus, who has any interest in knowing or learning or meeting Jesus, they have to do so as John's Gospel reveals under the cover of darkness. It has to be a secretive, discreet meeting. Because no faithful spiritual leader wanted to be caught next to Jesus, following Jesus, or agreeing with Jesus. And it's not because the religious leaders were irreligious or anti-faith or even bad people. Quite the contrary, actually. The Pharisees and Sadducees wanted to honor God and honor their faith deeply, honestly, zealously. It was their faith that guided them and all that they did. They didn't push back against Jesus because they, the leaders, lacked faith. It was because of their faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they struggled with Jesus. Jesus rocked their religious dogma to the core, and he challenged everything the leaders thought to be true. You see, they couldn't see the truth because their eyes were blinded by what they thought was true. Even Paul had to have scales fall from his eyes so that he could see, truly see. 
And without these new eyes, without Paul's new eyes, we could be missing up to one half of the Christian testament. It was religious leaders like Paul before his Damascus journey. They have no issue calling Jesus a prophet or a teacher or even rabbi. Their faith allowed them to do that. But where they stumbled until they could see, truly see, was understanding that God was doing something new and different in the world. The folks the society wanted, they needed a Messiah. They needed a coup-creating Savior that would wield a powerful sword like the leaders of the great kings in Jewish history. The community, the leaders had prayed for someone to overthrow the Roman Empire and to reestablish David's line forever, thus proving that God had once again heard the people's cries and delivered them. The people looked for and wanted a coup. They got a revolution of peace and love. They prayed for the destruction of Rome and death to their enemies. They got a Savior that preached, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. They expected, the people expected, the leaders expected a return to glory and justice raining down as God's harsh judgment. They got Emmanuel, who ate with sinners, healed lepers, and walked with the less than desirable. The leaders wanted ex exclusion for the sake of their faith. They got the Son of Man who invites, who includes, who welcomes all in love. Why didn't the leaders recognize Jesus as the Savior? Because they didn't have eyes to see or ears to hear. However, Peter and the disciples, they got it right. They said, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And so, if you're still with me, I ask this question of us today. Who do we say Jesus is? Let's take a moment and think about that question before we answer, because it is absolutely essential that we get it right. Not just for our own faith journey and our own maturation, but also because the world awaits our answer. The world needs to know who we say Jesus is, because the impact of our answer can be transformative. But as history has shown all too often, the church has used it to be devastating and painful. Who do we say Jesus is? If we have the courage to profess that Jesus is Messiah, then we must believe that he came to save the world, not just a select few. Jesus came to restore the entire cosmos, and this was all a part of God's plan. God's plan to bridge the secular and the sacred. But folks, it is a plan that you and I have a role to play. We cannot and must not sit back and idly watch this guy for a savior riding on a horse coming in to save the day. Yes, I do believe Jesus is coming back. I do believe in the new Jerusalem. But if I say Jesus is Messiah, then I am also saying yes to whatever that means to me, today, tomorrow, and all the days leading up to that wonderful day when heaven and earth meet again. So what does that look like? What does it look like to be walking and working and doing the work while we wait? It looks just like Jesus walking along that dusty Palestinian landscape. It is meeting the marginalized and listening to their stories and then advocating for them. It is working for racial justice and reconciliation. It is working for policies that care for the at-risk and ensure that each child of God who walks this blessed earth has a chance at dignity a whole life, the abundant life that Jesus promised. 
which is promised in John 10.10. Jesus, who's just preached about being the good shepherd, you know, the one who calls to a sheep, protects the sheep, the one who leaves the 99 to go for that lost one. He's just said, I am the good shepherd. And then Jesus adds this amazing line. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they, that you, that we may have life and have it full. Hear that again. Jesus came that we may have life and have it to the full. So if we profess that Jesus is Messiah, this is our call as well. And as I stand here before you all, I believe the call is in great hands. Just over 500 years ago, another eager zealot for Jesus did something amazing. He took 95 theses. Where are my church history people? I'm about to get a little history in here, so if you don't like history, go to sleep. He took 95 theses and nailed it to the front doors of his local church. He had no intention of creating new denominations or even splitting with the church. He simply loved Jesus, believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And Martin Luther's love for the church believed it to be better. He wasn't the first to question the church, whether the sacred gathering place of Christ had lost away. He wasn't the first. Reformers, thinkers, challengers had existed before. But what made Luther's work essential, along with Zwingli and Calvin and others, was their access to a certain technological masterpiece, the printing press. And that marvel of invention allowed Luther and others to mass produce the Bible and the language of the communities. Common folks can now read scripture because up to that point, Latin was the sole language of the church. And most persons were uneducated, which is pretty much everyone sitting in the pews. They didn't speak, read, or understand Latin. So the pictures played a role as you go to these churches, the cathedrals, the stained glass windows played a role in helping tell the story. But the faith because of the foreign language, remain distant, and folks are simply receivers of the preached word. Yet when access to information is given to the masses, the masses will learn. They will grow. They will question. They will challenge. And yes, they will find ways to live out their faith in ways they never knew possible because of Jesus, because Jesus is the Messiah, because Jesus is the one Peter proclaimed to be the Son of God. Jesus didn't come just for the educated who could speak and read and write Latin. Jesus came for everyone. He came to save them all. And as folks understood this, they read and met the Jesus of the scriptures. They found the life that he had promised, abundant life. They didn't meet a Jesus living in some heavenly realm. They met the Jesus here, now, right where they were. And that has made all the difference. The last 500 years since have been incredible. Young adults continued to meet Jesus, professing Jesus to be Messiah. And then these same young adults hear Jesus' call upon their lives, and they say yes. By young adults, I mean 18 to 40. I'm just beyond that, but I cheer you on from the sidelines. And I remain in awe of you and the work you're doing. I'm at the age of almost looking at retirement. No laughing, Zach. You see, young adults, young people listening to the call of Jesus upon their lives were the ones who led the way for racial justice and policy change during the Civil Rights Movement. It is young adults today who remind us that black lives matter. Young adults are the ones who are working for women to have more say and more role in politics as it was young women, young women and young adults that in 1919 made sure that 19, Article 19 was passed and it was women had the right to vote. It was a young adult 
at least close enough to be considered a young adult, that realized church had to be different. Serving a church in Pekin, New York, a young, zealous minister recognized areas that needed to be changed. He could see that the system where the pews were had created a caste system for people that attended worship. If you could pay enough, you got to sit closer in the places of privilege. The ones who had little or nothing, well, they got pushed to the margins. And from that recognition, a movement was birthed. A movement that started with removing pews so that all could have access, so that all could be free, led to a church that has paved the way for where we are today. B.T. Roberts' vision and faith in Jesus as Messiah created a path forward for a denomination that built these very walls, the Free Methodist. And it was not just pews that Roberts tackled and others that walked with them as they believed Jesus was the Messiah. These radical Jesus followers were dedicated abolitionists. And they worked hard to end slavery and create a world where God's love reflected everything, where God's justice was felt here and now and not in some light years away. It was also in this same spirit, the same love for Christ, that helped the Free Methodists lead the way in ordaining women in 1911, well before women even had the right to vote, and ages before most denominations did so. What started with Luther, Zwingli, and Calvin raising questions and then giving persons access to the Bible in their own language became a recipe for great change for all. Sure, we might still kind of, in a way, benefit from the printing press. I mean, some of us still enjoy turning pages in a book and feeling those pages meet our fingers. However, as you are well aware, the access to information is greater than it has ever been. Young and old scour the web, googling whatever their hearts desire. And within the touch of an app, their curiosities take them down a deep treasure map of transformational proportions. Though the Bible might and still has been translated in over 3,000 different languages, giving access to more and more people to the gospel and the good news of Jesus' salvific act with the internet and social media. Now we, the church, I believe we're on the brink of another great reformation. And looking at you, I am all in. Where the printing press gave Luther the tools he needed to reach everyday persons, social media has given young people and others not as young the ability to tell their stories to the world. The world is more connected than it has ever been. And in the time it takes to take your finger onto your phone, we can find ourselves watching a reel from someone in the Middle East, and a new community is formed. However, as stated before, I am at the age where I have to acknowledge my role as cheerleader for you. So why do I believe that we're on the cusp of another great reformation? because you already know Jesus better than I did when I was your age. Your access to information and your desire to know Jesus has led you to seek and find answers to your faith questions. I loved Jesus in college, but I was not about to go to the library and check out a Bart text to read some systematic theological tome just to get to know him better. Your access and ability to navigate the web brings you the instant knowledge you need your love for Jesus, matched with your understanding of who he was, has equipped you for this call. And with the access to technological mysteries every day unfolding, it is time. And the world needs you. You no longer need old white guys telling you to live like Jesus and how that should happen. You are more than capable of figuring that out for yourselves. And the church has already felt the healing 
from your faithfulness. Abuse, all too often, once overlooked or hidden in churches to protect the institution, will no longer be tolerated because of young people like you. You are using your platforms to shine light into areas once hidden. Your love for Jesus is changing the church. You are marching with Black Lives Matter because you love Jesus and know that Jesus wants a world where one skin color should not be feared but celebrated. Your love for Jesus is changing the church and the world. You are challenging systems that create injustice for the most vulnerable, just like your predecessor, B.T. Roberts. And you will not be silenced. You demand change. You demand equality for all. You demand that all have a place in the pews and that no one should be exempt or left out. Your love for Jesus, your statement that Jesus is the Messiah, has already begun creating a more equitable, holy community. And so much more. You're writing songs and poetry. You're singing songs and leading music. You're dreaming dreams and living them out. You're asking questions of yourself and the world you inhabit. The Great Reformation is happening already here, right now, and it is because of you and your love for Jesus and your desire to live like Jesus and your belief that our churches, our communities, and our world can reflect more Jesus. So when asked, who do you say Jesus is? I already hear you proclaiming loudly. He is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And i got to tell you, our world is already better for it. The next great reformation has already begun. And I am all in, and I thank you for leading us into it. Amen.